Now the Western PA people like sheets, right? Well, actually, so I was going to ask you because, of course, there's sheets in uh, Northern Virginia too. So you have, uh, you have probably the best. Uh, certainly, of the two of us, you have the better Wawa sheets comparative experience. Yeah, and I would say honestly, people just like whichever one has the cheaper gas price. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. You've downloaded yet another D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. We're in our 12th season of podcasting, our 20th season of covering Division Three football, and we welcome you to podcast number 218. 25 of them have seemed to be in the last two weeks, and we'll talk about week 9 of the 2018 Division Three football season for the edition for October 29th, 2018. Just a couple of days away for the first regional rankings of the season. We've got three teams who have clinched bids to the playoffs already. And on the other end of the spectrum, we've got multiple conferences which might need multiple tiebreakers. So sounds like we're going to have another great finish to the regular season. That makes me pretty happy. Uh, speaking of me, me is Pat Coleman, editor and publisher of D3Football.com. I'm Keith McMillan, or the Regional Advisory Committee to Pat's National Selection Committee. Seriously, though, I'm glad to be back in the co-hosting seat from the home studio. And this is the part of the season where the podcast really shines or gets buried in minutia, which to you might be shining or might not be. We'll talk playoff spots, conference title races, strength of schedule, all that fun stuff. Now that week nine is in the book, there are clashes with title implications and longtime rivalry games slated for weeks 10 and 11. And then playoff time will be here. Oh, yeah. We haven't even really talked about rivalry games, and I'm not sure if we're going to get to, but we'll get to do that on Friday. And a subsequent Friday, because uh, back here in week nine, Barry, St. John's, UW-Whitewater each clinched their respective playoff bids, while UW-Oshkosh kind of played itself out of playoff consideration. But then again, at the same time, Johns Hopkins beat Muhlenberg, and they put Muhlenberg into contention for one of the five at-large bids. So I'm really looking forward to getting the first set of regional rankings on Wednesday afternoon. So we can get a look at what the committee thinks. There are a handful of situations like that, Pat, and listeners will get a more full breakdown of conference races and Pool C speculation on Friday's podcast. See, I'm making promises now. Uh, But those regional rankings will give us some insight into what the committee sees for teams such as Muhlenberg, Wittenberg, and Center, the possibly unbreakable tie between DelVal and Misericordia, the teams trailing the leaders in the OAC and MIAC, the Pool B candidates and the new Mac versus Thomas More discussion, and perhaps how the committee interprets or ignores the non-Division three losses by Linfield, UW Lacrosse, or UW Oshkosh, although all those teams with uh, with multiple losses and, and may not be uh, in the discussion at all. Remember, these rankings matter not just to tell us who is likely to get into the 32-team field, but wins against regionally ranked teams are one of the five major selection criteria. So to they they don't just we're not just looking at this for the speculation part the the whole entire ranking all the way down to 10 in each of the four uh, major regions uh, will help us put teams in the field when we do that speculation and he mentioned five major criteria the other four are win loss uh, results against division three opponents strength of schedule against division three opponents head-to-head competition and uh, results against common opponents and you can find out more about that and the entire set of criteria for the Division Three football playoffs on our website. I will make sure that there is a link on the podcast page and you can pick it up there. And we could certainly speculate here in this particular podcast about what those rankings might hold and where that might send teams in the postseason for potential pairings. But those would be super speculative at this point, and we might as well just wait a couple of days to see what the committee thinks. So on this 
promised future podcast. Yeah, we'll keep podcasting. We'll talk about bracketology with uh, Greg Thomas, who's part of our bracketology team, or maybe the leader of our bracketology team, chief bracketologist, only bracketologist. Anyway, we'll have him on a later podcast this week. At this point, I don't even want to promise what day podcast will be out because we may well have multiple podcasts this week. Yeah, stop doing that. Stop promising or stop having multiple podcasts? The latter, but both. Yeah, one one site I follow, uh, a politics site, has daily podcasts between now and the election, you know, a week from Tuesday. I'm sure we could probably find content to do daily podcasts between now and Selection Sunday, but I don't think I would ever have time to do anything else. Uh, a lot of the conversation right now, of course, is about who will get home games in the playoffs now that we have teams who have qualified. It's too soon to say in a lot of cases beyond the set of teams which are currently unbeaten teams in strong conferences such as, oh, your UW-Whitewaters, Mount Union, Mary Harden-Baylor, St. John's, Frostburg, Brockport, and the like. Those teams are likely to be set up for at least two home games if they win out. Uh, a one-loss team that finishes as a runner-up in one of those conferences could be a four or five seed and could either host an evenly matched team like North Central did last year or be sent on the road to one like St. John's was last year in being sent to North Central. But also, we had a half-hour-long conversation with the committee chair last week, and that podcast is number 216 in this feed, and it's definitely worth a listen. Also worth a listen if you're a fan of the Wu-Tang Clan. Woo! Tang! Yes! Uh, good mention. Pat, I, I do think those 3-6 and 4-5 or 4-6, 3-7, as it were, matchups, <laughs> those are the ones where the team's will be fairly evenly match up. Those will produce the, the best matchups and we'll find a subset of teams. Maybe 12 of the teams in the field will be right on that place where they could host in a certain matchup. Maybe they'll, maybe they're nine and one and uh, they, you know, you could find them. They could find themselves on the road. They could find themselves at home, you know, with a, with a pretty favorable matchup because even though sometimes the way the teams stack up by criteria and the way the selection committee matches them up doesn't produce matchups that we, as outsiders and top 25 voters, think are going to be competitive. So uh, those middle, especially because you don't expect you know Mountain Union to get pushed in round one, um, although they had a 21-0 game last year. I think those middle games are the ones where we're going to spend a lot of our time um, thinking about just the way we spend a lot of our time worrying about the five at-large bids because the 25 – and the, and the 26 pool B bid are, will be relatively straightforward. Right. And those five at large teams are often those nine and one teams that we're talking about, right? They're often, uh, they're not, they're the last teams selected to the field, but they are far from the worst teams in the field. They're often like Frostburg state was last year, a team that could win a couple of games and get to the quarterfinals. Uh, similarly Wheaton, which qualified with two losses way back in, uh, I'm going to spitball it at 2005. You guys can uh, fact check me on that. Um, oh, it's you know, got to be like oh eight. Well, they played trying, so it's, uh, right. So it's, maybe it's six or seven, something like that. It is a uh, it's a it's a long ways back there, relatively speaking, in uh, in in you know college football generation terms. Look at that. It's uh, but the point you the point you were making is that that team got in at eight and two, probably the thirty second team in the field, not but wasn't the thirty second best team in the field. And they went on to play three rounds of football. We've seen that. Um, a few times where one of the last teams in goes on and wins games. So that's why we spend so much time on pool C and Pat, before you go, I'll copy editor on me. I mean, what else would they play? Right. Three rounds of cricket. 
That's fine. While you were copy editing yourself, I was fact checking myself. It was 2008. They went to the semifinals that they beat uh, Trine, Wabash, and Franklin on the road to get there. So congrats, 2008 Thunder. Those are indeed the teams we're going to spend a lot of time on. But of course, there are still 23 automatic bids left to be handed out. Yeah, the math works out for that. Uh, And the one pool B bid. And, uh, you know, some of the teams that are uh, prominent and some of the teams that we mentioned as being teams that are probably going to be set up for two home games. Some of them have clinched, like Whitewater and St. John's. Uh, Mountain Union just needs another win. Mary Harden Baylor just needs another win. Brockport just needs another win, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we definitely have to spend some time focusing on those guys as well. Keith, what else do we want to talk about before we uh, talk about who's not sponsoring us? What else we want to talk about? Let's talk about the Mary Harden Baylor quarterback situation. Luke Poorman, the person we put on the cover of kickoff this year as a high profile transfer from Mount Union to Mary Harden Baylor, got his first start for the crew this week and uh, led the offense to the better part of 80 points. Um, cut like a knife through hot butter, the the uh, McMurray defense, and uh, added a little element of the uh, the read option run game to his uh, to his deep passing. You know, Keith, people really get frustrated when we talk when we've talked about Luke Porman in weeks when he's gone three for three in relief. There have been weeks where, you know, Jace Hammock and Luke Porman and Denarian Thomas as well as the kind of uh, wildcat type quarterback have all kind of gotten snaps early in the game. Then last week, Hammock got uh, last week being week eight. Hammock got uh, basically everything, and then Poorman came on in relief in the fourth quarter. And, you know, it's like people love to talk about quarterback controversy because that was a thing that uh, everybody talked about in, you know, the NFL in the, well, in the 80s is when I first heard the the term. I'm sure it's probably that before. It's I don't know if it's a controversy as much as it is uh, a conundrum or at the very least a conversation because Mary Harden Baylor doesn't have any poorly performing quarterbacks, right? That's when you more have a, a controversy. This is still trying to figure out which of the guys or which combination they want to use. And yeah, and they finally gave Poorman, I guess, a chance to play in the first quarter or get the first snaps of the game. Well, those, that's definitely the best time to watch a Mary Harden Baylor game uh, when they're playing an overmatched opponent. And, and this season, yeah. uh, pretty much everyone they've played has been overmatched and you could make the argument that even Harden Simmons which remains in the top 10 uh, was fairly overmatched in its game and the surprise for those people that you're referencing or or um, those of us who, who watched the game Jace Hammock was great in the in the Harden Simmons game and he's had some really outstanding performances and I don't I'm not so sure the plan all along wasn't to bring Luke Porman along slowly and whenever he was ready whenever you know he passed Hammock uh, in terms of what he brings to the table. And, and right now that difference, uh, according to Frank Rossi, who is, as you know, now a co-host and <laughs> more than just, more than just friend of the pod right now. Um, you know, he said that the big difference between Poorman and Hammock is, um, is, is that ability to run and, and to execute the, the run offense because so many of the plays um, have a quarterback uh, keep element to them so that element you know bring makes the whole offense hum a little better and certainly when the offense puts up 80 you uh you can't argue with it but I don't think uh hammock was bad and I remember when we had coach Fredenberg on early in the year and and very early on uh on an early podcast after the Albright game we talked to um 
Larry Harmon a little bit. And what they were looking for out of a quarterback is one of those guys to emerge as the leader, right? The guy who not, not just moves the ball against an overmatched defense, but inspires the team. Because what's going to happen for Mountain Union and Mary Harden Baylor and St. John's and Whitewater and Brockport and Frostburg is they're going to stop winning these 52-7 games and 80-7 and 55-24. And they're going to start getting, when they start playing each other, they're going to need to dig deep and win pull-out games in the fourth quarter and convert key third downs when the crowd's going crazy and the weather's not the weather they're used to and all that kind of stuff. So uh, so being long-sighted rather than short-sighted struck me as how Mary Harden-Baylor has always looked at its quarterback situation. Right. They have played multiple quarterbacks in stag bowl years back to 2004 when Josh Welch was one of multiple quarterbacks. And, you know, once upon a time, Blake Jackson was one of multiple quarterbacks. So I think we said this. I've said this on the podcast. I know Mary Harden Baylor basically never seems to get through a season without using more than one starting quarterback. And clearly now 2018 is no exception. I'd like to take this time to mention that the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is currently sponsored by nobody. You could be reaching an audience full of decision makers in Division Three football, coaches who need new equipment, who can influence decisions to replace turf, all sorts of things by sponsoring this podcast. And those are the big money things, right? You know, there's also lots of little places where coaches and other people who follow the D3 podcast spend money, whether it's communication software for their team, whether it's a football team, or, you know, frankly, communication software for a communication team that exists outside of the Division Three football spectrum. Keith and I would be waxing poetic about your product or your service right here in break. So think about it and uh, drop me an email at pat.coleman at d3sports.com. This is the time of year where there are lots of ears. I was going to say eyeballs, but eyeballs don't listen. And it's time for Game Balls. And on Friday's podcast, in uh, previewing Wabash Wittenberg, I mentioned Wittenberg quarterback Jake Kennedy and Wabash quarterback Jake Reed. But it was a third player who jaked up this matchup, and it was Little Giants free safety Jake Page. He intercepted the aforementioned Kennedy in the fourth quarter to help preserve a 14-7 lead, then picked him off again in overtime to end the game and secure a 28-21 victory. Page's cousin, Oliver Page, caught two touchdown passes in the win as well. But the Page who gets my game ball is Wabash safety Jake Page. By the way, there was a Friday podcast. Yeah, I meant to mention that. Uh, <laughs> uh, did you uh, did you hear about that? Did it end up in your feed? There was a podcast. Well, I did uh, listen to it. It sounded great. Illinois Wesleyan hadn't been a bad offense this year, averaging 33.5 points per game through the first seven, but it's peaking at the right time, scoring a season-high 49 at Milliken on Saturday in a win that set up a huge home showdown with North Central next week. A win clinches a playoff spot and probably a first-round home game for the Titans. A loss might leave them out of the playoff picture entirely. And the reason that big game is still possible is because of a remarkably well-rounded offense that had a 14-12 and play touchdown drive and then three touchdown drives of four plays or shorter, including one where they cashed in off a turnover. Get to know the names Brandon Bauer and Morgan Alexander. The Titans junior quarterback passed for 305 yards and three touchdowns with no interceptions, and the senior running back carried 31 times for 144 yards and three touchdowns. The overall numbers weren't necessarily eye-popping, but they came against a Millican team that had six wins coming into Saturday's game. North Central will have seven when it meets the Titans next week, and the games will just get tougher from there. But for its 49-point outburst this past week, the Illinois Wesleyan offense gets my game ball. My team on the rise this week, Keith, is Bethel. 
I gave them a bit of a bump on my ballot this week, even though it's not really related to anything the Royals did here in Week 9. But Bethel is one of the teams that I've been voting for in the spots that I wasn't devoting to, say, Wittenberg or Trine. Uh, Their showdown with St. Thomas isn't until Week 11. But uh, remember Simpson, that's who Bethel beat in Week 1. Simpson continues to win games, including beating Wartburg a few weeks back. And, of course, St. John's continues to win games as well. So I found a spot for Bethel in my top 20 this week. Yeah, I just uh, started voting for Bethel last week, and I think that's a uh, it's a solid choice on your part. My riser is Salisbury. I probably hung on to Wesley one week too long as a top 25 voter, and after the Wolverines' third one-point loss of the year, I dropped them out of my top 25 entirely. But I basically moved Salisbury in, in their spot. I have them 13th. I didn't even vote for the Seagulls last week, partially because their schedule was so backloaded. Wesley and Frostburg State, they're, they're two rivals, and Teams that were the front front runners in the NJAC are the last two games on the Salisbury schedule, and they hadn't played Montclair State or Rowan until the second half of the schedule either. Because it was so backloaded, it took me a long time to buy in. But after the Seagulls moved to 8-0 with an emphatic 45-7 thumping of Rowan, which was coming off that upset of Wesley, there was no more holding back. For all we know, this is the best Salisbury team since the one that lost at Whitewater in the Final Eight in 2011. Or if these next two weeks go poorly, they could be 8-2 and two and on the outside looking in. But for now, voters were as impressed as I was. Salisbury moved from 25th overall in the poll to 18th. Quick sidebar. We've talked a couple times about how you know Whitewater ended up not in the playoffs last year as a three-loss team had you know some uh, a couple of really close losses obviously and then you know a less close loss to a really talented Oshkosh team uh, I wonder if you know at some point in the next couple of years we're going to be looking at Wesley 2018 in a similar vein as a team that lost three one-point games and for the for the lack of an extra point here or there we could be still talking about them in the top five yeah this was in my every thought of yours but since you brought it up Wesley's it's really been a hard luck season for them. They are they beat Delaware Valley, which is leading the MAC in their opener, and they and they run into the NJAC in a year where it's five good teams at the top of that conference. And to normally you'd look at a team and say, okay, three one point losses. What are the coaches doing wrong? And it, it's maybe even I don't know that I've read anyone else say this, but I, I feel like I want to get ahead of this reaction where. Wesley is not the same team under Chip Knapp that it was under Mike Drass. It's very much the same team. They always have had kicking issues. They've often had penalty issues, and they're they're very similar to the the way Wesley teams have always been. They've just shot themselves in the foot, for lack of a better way to put it, in these close games the past uh, few weeks. This one on Saturday it was just you know there's no better way to put it. It was just bad in every way because they should have won that game. It was 10-9, Montclair State ahead. Uh, Wesley, first they fumbled on the one going in. They, they had a ball inside the five, get to the one-yard line. Bad snap exchange, fumble, Montclair State recovers it. Montclair State moves a few yards, punts it back to Wesley. Wesley um, drives down again, gets stopped in, in close, has a 23-yard field goal attempt, and they had already missed an extra point on the bad snap early in the game. This time the snap was fine. Uh, the 23-yard field goal attempt was hooked. And then there was a third thing that they did late in the game uh, that I can't remember off the top of my head. But in any case, they are they just really blew some chances to to win a game against a Montclair State team that's turned out to be a pretty good team this season. I think it's time for me to go to the Wesley baseball roster and find out who's playing third base and see if they can draft another uh, another baseball player to play kicker for the football team. Back. 
That wasn't flying. That was falling with style. My team, which will take a fall this week, is UW Oshkosh. I go fairly low tech when I'm compiling my top 25 ballot, Keith. I, I copy and paste my vote from last week into just a plain old text file, and I shuffle teams around from there. And I'm not sure if I've ever taken a team that was as high on my ballot as Oshkosh was and just hit plain old delete rather than cutting it and pasting them somewhere lower in the ballot. I really did think that this Oshkosh team had enough defense to win uh, and with the way the offense had begun to come around, but uh, clearly that just isn't the case. This is a program or a team that's just not consistent enough here in 2018. Well, they gotten over the big hump the week before with the win over uh, UW Lacrosse and then turn around and lose against UW Stevens Point. And it's now their third loss of the season. And it was easy for us as voters to brush off the loss to Davenport because that's a D2 team. Doesn't count for anything. It was a 7-3 game and it was very early in the season when the offense was struggling. The other loss uh, was to Whitewater. And you said, OK, well, Whitewater's great again. So uh, can't ding them too much for that one. And they... And this is where we get hung up so many times as voters. They had wins over other good teams too, right? They weren't just yeah. um, oh, we have they they weren't just judging them by their losses, right? They they had some nice wins, particularly the lacrosse win. That result was baffling on Saturday, Pat. And I think you did the right thing. I moved Oshkosh completely out of my ballot as well. I had another team that uh, that took a fall, and that was Wittenberg, which was my 18th ranked team last week. And I essentially replaced them with Wabash, the team that beat it. on Saturday and uh, is now my number 21 ranked team. A few podcasts ago after the four overtime Wittenberg win against Denison, I'd warned that as great as that win was and as great as it felt for Tigers and their fans, it was a signal of vulnerability to top 25 voters. I'd kind of creeped Wittenberg down from high teens to uh, 18 last week, as we mentioned. And I don't think it's weird or wrong for voters who are backing teams who are undefeated or, or have one or two losses, maybe by the skin of their teeth, to swap them out with teams with similar resumes, especially teams from the same conference who have almost the same record and play almost the same teams, and then they beat them head-to-head. -head. I don't think that's weird or wrong to swap a team in um, pretty much in the same spot that you had another team. So rather than moving a team in necessarily at 25, you can bring them in at 21 or in, in the case of Salisbury. To me, the way I justify it is, Salisbury this week is the team I thought Wesley was. So if I thought the second best team in the NJAC belonged between 10 and 15, then why can't Salisbury go in there, even though I wasn't voting for them last week? Uh, in any case, Wabash hadn't really impressed this season, but I think I was basing that mostly on the 34-10 loss to Denison. But when you step back and look at the full resume, they're 7-1. and one. They've beaten almost all the same teams that Wittenberg had beaten, and so they uh, deserve to be in the top 25, and the Tigers no longer do. I basically did the same thing myself this week with Muhlenberg and Johns Hopkins. I had Muhlenberg somewhere in maybe, say, the 18 range and Johns Hopkins perhaps 23rd or something like that, and I just swapped lines. And I actually don't think that's a bad idea, especially when you get this deep in the season because, like I said, the teams have essentially played the same schedule. My off-the-beaten-path highlight for this week comes from Westerville, Ohio, where Otterbein hosted Capital on Saturday in one of Division III's less-discussed local rivalries, the rivalry around Columbus, Ohio. We've talked a bit about Capital's offense this year, but uh, the Crusaders were on defense when they came up with the play to end the game and secure a 23-19 win against Otterbein. But I, I'm going to need to back up a bit in order to give it the full context. I'm going to start with the 5-13 left in the game. Capital leads 16-13 and has to punt the ball away. 
and on the uh, ensuing drive, Otterbein's Dakota Smith takes off on a 45-yard touchdown run to give the Cardinals a 19-16 lead. Extra point, no good, however, and this will come back to be an issue. Capital converted two fourth downs on the next drive, and Thomas Wibbler found uh, Dartavius Stanford for a 31-yard touchdown pass, giving the Crusaders a 23-19 lead with 55 seconds left. So now Otterbein needs a touchdown, right, rather than a potential field goal to tie the game. They cover the squib kick at midfield. They complete a pass down to the two-yard line, and Otterbein takes its final timeout with 8.4 seconds left. But quarterback Bryce Hall subsequently mishandles the snap and is swallowed up by the Capitol defense, and time runs out before they can line up and snap it again. It ends up being Capitol's first win of the year, and what better way to get a first win of the year than to do it against your local rival? Pat, that was a very good uh, off-the-beaten-path highlight, and and the point of it, and the reason this is one of my favorite podcast categories is I just looked at that score and, and kept on going. Like I didn't I didn't realize there was so much game in there because when you're looking at 110, 115 games each Saturday, there are certain ones that you are you come in interested in, and we highlight those in the Friday pod and then quick hits on Friday on the website. And then there are certain games the score intrigues you, like, okay, 28, 27, what happened there? Or, you know, something, something four overtimes, you go read about that one, but you can't it's not likely that you read about all um 115 games no and then i have to thank ryan gasser the capital sports information director for uh putting that story together and posting it on d3football.com that is uh, certainly where i drew that from well my off the beaten path highlight started with uh struggling saint vincent putting itself in position to win its second game of the season with a nine play touchdown drive aided by a pass interference call on third and 17 that gave him a first down to extend the drive to take a 27 23 lead with 701 left and all Grove City did from that point was eat up almost the entirety of the clock and cash in for a game-winning touchdown pass from Josh Est to Cody Gustafson with 26 seconds left. And maybe the most amazing part of that drive is Grove City had a second and 23 on that drive. Later on the drive, they had a second and 14. They still managed to convert first downs both of the time and managed to win its fourth game in a row. That's my off-the-beaten-path highlight. My most surprising result from Week 9 is Bridgewater beating Shenandoah 28-20. to Hornets jump out to a 20-0 lead 21 minutes into the game, but Bridgewater scored 28 unanswered points for the victory. Last week, Bridgewater's comeback versus Randolph-Macon was only enough to tie the game, and the Eagles ended up losing in double overtime, but this time the rally was successful. So Bridgewater winning this game, of course, isn't the most surprising part, and in fact, no result can be considered most surprising in the ODAC this year especially, but the 20-point rally, I think, is worthy of note. Meanwhile, after a hot start, Shenandoah quarterback Hayden Bowserman was held under 55% completions for the third consecutive game. I played a game at Bridgewater in 1995 in, um, when Randolph-Macon, the, uh, the old alma mater, trailed 20-0, to and we scored 28 in the final 9-56 to win 28-20, the exact same score you just mentioned. It takes a particular set of circumstances to make that cool story, bro, story relevant. <laughs> Anyway, I'd love to stay in the ODAC since WNL, known for its shotgun, flex gun, bone thing offense, whatever Turr will tell me what to, what I should call that offense, but it's got a unique running offense that's based off option and misdirection. Shockingly, only scored three against Guilford. But in the interest of mixing it up, let's get away from the ODAC and uh, discuss Muskingum's 41-14 win against Heidelberg. That was a 14-all game late in the first quarter. I can't think of an OAC program we talk about less, but the Muskies, behind a four-rushing touchdown day from sophomore quarterback Brody Hahn, whomped Heidelberg to get to 500, and with Mount Union and Capital left on the schedule, Muskingum might finish the season that way. 
Not only is it the OAC team that we probably talk least about, and I think you're correct on that, it's also the least talked about Division Three Muskies program. Wow, Lake, there's a Lakeland reference there. Yeah, exactly. I was gonna I, one more second, and I was gonna have to throw the crickets in there, but we'll uh, we'll let it go. Oh, you can do it if you want. That's I don't, I don't know. We're up to stat of the week, and I'm going to go from one extreme to the other, from, say, the most competitive conference to perhaps the least. And the average margin of victory in conference games in the Minnesota Intercollegiate Athletic Conference this season is 36.7 points per game, more than five touchdowns a game. There's been a grand total of one one-score game all season, and that's when Carleton defeated Augsburg by two points a few weeks ago. There have been eight games won by 50 points or more. The gap between the haves and the have-nots seemingly has never been wider in this conference, and there are even levels of have-not going on. Concordia Moorhead has both won a conference game by 55 and lost one by 39. St. John's even beat its two closest rivals for the Maya Crown by 20 and 18 points, respectively. Yeah, those stats of the week are better than mine, but mine are pretty good. Sometimes, especially those of us who vote in the poll, you see a score and you deem it a less than impressive win. Certainly, that was my first reaction to seeing top five Brockport's 22-6 win at Utica. But voters didn't really seem to care as Brockport only lost two points overall. That game was 9-6 to at the half, though, and I think that's when we started talking about it amongst ourselves. And it's certainly not the team that has been crushing all year that, that we're used to seeing. Or was it? The Golden Eagles actually dominated the game, outgaining the Pioneers, 537 to 133, 26 first downs to eight, and they had more than 40 minutes of time of possession. They also had 40 more plays run um, than uh, Brockport did, than Utica, 93 to 53. But Brockport was hung up by three turnovers and 11 penalties. So those might be the those might not be amazing stats and that you sometimes hear in this uh, slot on the podcast, but they illuminate a point that bears repeating. These games are more than just their final scores. The one other stat that people might know about Brockport and might be interested in keeping track of is, of course, the uh, rushing yards allowed per game. They allowed minus 62 in that one. And the record for most, I guess, least rushing yards allowed in a game is like minus 113. This is how long ago this was. It was a game between Wesleyan and Coast Guard. So that's a game between a NESCAC team and a non-NESCAC team. Took place in the 1980s. Your categories have become tiresome. Now's the time on Sprockets where we dance. Now is the time of the podcast when we go to Twitter. And our Twitter question this week for this podcast is from Chad Hammonds. He's at Hammonds, And he uh, notes, in quick hits, we discussed who would be hurt the most for regional rankings. Who helped themselves the most? Hashtag D3FB at D3Football. Chad Hammonds was our guest on Quick Hits this week, so he's very familiar with what the questions were. Keith, uh, your thoughts about who helped themselves going into Wednesday's regional rankings? I mean, it's a really great question, and I, I wish I had a great answer off top because I think the teams that help themselves the most are the teams that uh, were trailing and, and then put themselves in front in a conference race. Uh, Wabash is one. Salisbury uh, is another. Right now they're running even with Frostburg State in the NJAC. A third one is is Johns Hopkins, which leapfrog over Muhlenberg, which is now a Pool C team. And so there were definitely some teams that um, – Play their way out or put themselves in a bad position in uh, in week nine, you know, Kalamazoo losing a, 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 the game to, to Olivet and they still have to play trying. They put themselves in, in a tough position, but I can't think of a really uh, um, uh, a team 
You know, there's like Illinois Wesleyan that remained in control uh, of its own destiny in the CCIW. But I can't think of a, a great team, a team that wasn't maybe on the Pool C radar that uh, that is. Or, you know, the answer really, in my case, I think is is Salisbury because um, even if they lose to Frostburg, they, they pretty much they just have to win one or two. Uh, uh, between Frostburg State and Wesley, their final two games, and they're they're probably uh, a pretty good Pool C candidate. I think Center is probably in a category of teams that at least ha- uh, didn't hurt themselves. Center's uh, in a situation where they're. We mentioned this on the podcast earlier, of course, uh, in the past week or so. But their regional ranking resume looks a lot better than their national ranking resume does they've got a a strength of schedule of 598 which is in the top 15 right now and you know that's kind of borne out by the fact that uh you know two of the teams that they played have done fairly well in lower level conferences so it's a Hanover lost on saturday so they were five and two now they're five and three uh maryville is another uh non-conference opponent for them and they won they beat Averett to improve to five and two so they're kind of helping that uh schedule stay up there they finished with sewanee and birmingham southern so that'll be maybe a bit of a wash and it might come down a little bit but i think center is a team that especially now with uh lost by muhlenberg um, you know, they may be behind Hardin-Simmons in the South region rankings when those come out, but Hardin-Simmons is likely to get in the field and likely to get in the field early, so center might have a shot at getting in, even though, you know, from the national ranking standpoint, they haven't played anybody who's receiving votes other than Barry, and they lost at home to Barry, and that, you know, puts them kind of on the outs with the top 25 panel. Well, Pat, that loss was 38-35 in overtime, and... Initially, that's the way I viewed Pool C, like a second chance reward for like or a second chance bucket for teams that basically played a game against their conference champion that could have gone either way. But as we mentioned in the podcast, that's not how this works. You you go down the criteria and center, although I've, I've been voting for them in the top 25 for several weeks, I think they have a big problem uh, and that's going to be lack of a win against anybody who is going to end up regionally ranked. I don't I think when they get stacked up on the board against other teams that have victories over other regionally ranked teams, they're they're going to be in a tough spot. Right. And if they end up in a, a situation where all they have to compare themselves with somebody else is a loss, then we'll go back to that South region uh, comparison for just a second. They have a loss to Barry, which will probably be now, I, it's dangerous for me to speculate because I haven't uh, laid this all out in front of me. They're not going to be the number one team in the South region, right? We know that uh, Mary Harden Baylor is going to be the number one team in the South region just based on the way everything has gone ever. So if you are comparing your two teams that have only losses to regionally ranked teams and no wins, Harden Simmons has the better loss or the loss to the higher ranked team. And that is also likely to be a factor that puts Harden Simmons in the field ahead of center. Thanks for the question, Chad, uh, and thanks for all of the other questions ever. We really appreciate that. You can ask us a question on Twitter uh, for this podcast. Respond when we put out the call on Sunday evenings, or, you know, just add us. You get the deal. Put the hashtag on. We love the hashtag. Every thought of yours is a friend of mine. We're bringing back the every thought of yours music uh, again. We uh, had a little uh, bit of uh, thoughts earlier on but uh keep more thoughts yeah i just thought we should acknowledge that uh that carnegie mellon uh postponed its game with 
Geneva on Saturday. They, uh, the Carnegie Mellon campus in Pittsburgh is uh, fairly close to where uh, 11 people were gunned down and many more injured uh, at the Squirrel Hill Synagogue. Yeah, and that game, uh, I listed it as postponed with the thoughts that maybe they might play on Sunday. I was not aware. I think it's the case that uh, Geneva is one of those schools that won't play an athletic event on Sunday. So that pretty much means that uh, this game is only likely to be made up after the end of the season. If, you know, Carnegie Mellon chooses not to do an ECAC game, maybe they might make up this game in week 12 like Averitt and Ferrum look like they might be doing with their game that was lost to Hurricane Florence earlier in the season. Yeah, that seems like a viable uh, alternative for teams that aren't in the postseason. We had one of those games on Saturday with uh, Lee Anthony Reasonover. We've been talking about this guy for a while. If you watched uh, the end of that game against Concordia of Wisconsin, the touchdown that uh, Lee Anthony Reasonover scored with, uh, I think it was 18 seconds left to win that game for Eureka, is basically the quintessential Lee Anthony Reasonover touchdown. I went to see them play at Martin Luther last year when they clinched the, the UMAC title, and that is exactly the kind of run that gives you know Reasonover some of his great numbers. You know, he had a, another, he had a 48 carry day on Saturday. It is, I, I, we've talked about him because of those big carry numbers, right? But I think that if you're thinking about who the best running backs in Division Three are, you have to have them in the conversation. You have to, I think you probably start with, I hate to commit to anything like that because, you know, who knows what the All-American team will look like at the end of the year. But you have to have Lamar Carswell really high in this conversation. Josh Parks has had an amazing season for St. Thomas. Lamar Carswell's with Trine. Uh, Parks entered the week this week, uh, entered this past week with averaging more than 10 yards a carry, which is just nuts. Um, and he had, uh, you know, they only played him for a few carries on Saturday, but he's had a fantastic season. But these guys are the the elite running backs in Division Three. I'm sure I'm missing other names. Of course, there will be other people on the All-American team because there will be eight. But these are the guys that uh, are really catching our uh, catching my eyes right now. Well, Pat, this discussion just got me thinking about um, who the Gallardi Trophy candidates might be this year. Uh, there will be 10 finalists. They're not. There's no position limit. Uh, Doesn't have to be an offensive. Yeah, ten, uh, back ten semifinalists. It right. It's right, and it doesn't doesn't have to be a senior necessarily. Although uh, for some programs, it often is. the The big gap in in how it's done is the uh, the schools nominate to the Gallardi Trophy uh, to the J Club, and then the J Club whittles it down to the ten semifinalists. So schools do have some say in in which. Um, foot they want to put forward, which player they want to put up for the nomination. But I mean, just to spitball a few names, I mean, who are players who stand out so much this season that that you'd want, you know, you'd, I mean, would Mary Harden Baylor nominate someone like Markeith Miller? Would Joe Germanario be, be a candidate, even though he's uh, not a senior? Uh, you know, I don't know. I, f- I feel like in Division One, A, or Division. Bowl championship subdivision, whatever the, the the kids are calling it now. Division um, one A. They spend a lot of time with the Heisman Trophy. Every week they're checking in. There's a Heisman watch, and we haven't really checked in yet on uh, on the Gallardi Trophy. So 
uh, just just that's a thought that that came from you mentioning uh, Lee Anthony Reese Nova and and Lamar Carswell and Josh Parks. Yeah, that's true. You know, of course, one of the things that uh, we should mention about the Gilardi Trophy, of course, if you're new to Division Three, is that it is the top honor given to a Division Three football student athlete. But it is not a direct comparison to the Heisman Trophy because the Gilardi Trophy also takes into account, of course, uh, academics and community service. This is the whole rounded individual in Division Three. It's a very Division Three award. And that is what we want to see in Division Three student athletes and people, of course, in general on the planet. But uh, that is part of this award. And that's one of the reasons why it makes it a little bit difficult to handicap. We don't know what a kid's GPA is. You know, aside from working, uh, you know, coaches football camp during the summer, um, that we don't know what else a kid does in terms of community service. And those are the things that sometimes can really be a separator in that uh, conversation. I definitely think we should always keep in mind uh, that we're dealing with people on the planet. So far, yes. I don't, uh, nobody on the space station has been uh, eligible for this yet. Uh, every thought of mine. Here's another one. Kalamazoo. I don't want to call it an around the region curse because that would be stupid, but they did. Um, they were basically on a, a collision course to play this uh, winner take all matchup of undefeated teams for the MIAA title uh, against Trine and uh, and stumbled on Saturday 21-17 against Olivet, who is, uh, you know, by the way, a, a five and three team. They're, they're in the mix in, uh, in the MIAA. They certainly weren't a pushover, but we maybe got a little ahead of ourselves in, uh, in, uh, with, with Kalamazoo or you could say that's a well-assigned story. It was perfectly timed. <laughs> Uh, well, it'd be hard to call it an around the region curse because we don't have around the region anymore. But the um, you, it, it is definitely, you know, you look at the schedule and of course, I thought it was going to be that way for Kalamazoo the previous week as well. And uh, they won an extra game. And at that, at that point, you know, we just have to we have to write the story, even if Kalamazoo, because even if Kalamazoo finishes seven and three, you know, they haven't been seven and oh, since 1962, they have not had. You know, you have to go back multiple seasons before you count up a cumulative total of seven wins for Kalamazoo. So uh, I thought we did a good job in the story, too, of, you know, running down who Kalamazoo has played or had played so far this season and, you know, why they might not be getting a lot of top 25 consideration at that point based on that schedule. How about FDU Florham? They're out of the race for the title in the MAC, but they're still having their best season in the D3Football.com era. The Devils are five and three. They've won five games for the first time since 1999. Now, in 99, they actually finished five and six because for some reason they got an ECAC bowl game at five and five that year. And they played Wilkes for a second time. Man, that was a long time ago. I don't remember any of that stuff. Uh, awkward pause on purpose. Hold on. So I just put on the hold music. We're good. Every thought of yours is a friend of mine. TCNJ beat William Patterson in one of the off the beaten path games on Saturday, 24 seven. And that is notable because uh, TCNJ hadn't, hadn't hit 24 very often this season. William Patterson stuck on seven. The struggles I actually had sorted by uh, was, I forget why I was looking um, at the stats, but I sorted uh, the the NCAA stats last last week, and four of the bottom 10, 12, 15 offenses in Division Three by scoring offense were from the NJAC, 
It was uh, TCNJ, William Patterson, Southern Virginia, and Kane. We talked in an earlier podcast this season about Kane's struggles. These are teams that have scored, you know, you know less than 75 points this season, roughly. And, you know, we, we're every week we're talking about some game where some team scores 75 points in, in a given week. So this is this is struggles. These are teams that have been shut out multiple times. And it made me realize that maybe the engine it's just the NJAC has some pretty darn good defenses this season. And so the uh, as you talked about earlier with the Mayak, that big top heavy, bottom heavy split, the same thing is happening in the NJAC. And it, it is reflected in the records, but it's even more reflected in the uh, in the statistics where uh you know, those bottom four teams barely even score. And then you've got Salisbury, Frostburg State, uh, Wesley Rowan, Montclair State, and even Christopher Newport to, to some degree, uh, having these outstanding seasons, playing great defense, and really only winning and losing against one another. You know, Keith, it's the time of year where we start getting kind of pretty outlandish emails too. Not just outlandish tweets, which everybody gets to see, but we get some uh, emails that are pretty interesting too. I got one on Sunday morning from a Montclair State fan that uh, was demanding more respect, you know, demanding respect, and saying that Montclair State is the best defense in the East. And now I really need to put the crickets in there, right? Who's the Who's the best defense in the East, everybody? Brockport? Yeah, that would be my take, yeah. Obviously, Montclair State, really good defensive team. I think, too, though, there's probably a combination of really good defenses and some really bad offenses right when we talked with uh, coach Garrett early in the year from Kane he mentioned that he was uh, playing 11 completely different offensive starters from last year uh, Dustin Johnson the new head coach at uh, William Patterson has got a lot of stuff to rebuild and I'm sure the offense is on the list there as well so I, I bet there's there's probably a little bit of both right sure you know my my annoyance with that phrase, uh, the best defense in the East or the best coach in Division Three, the best, we got the best quarterback in the country is like very few people. You know, there's some people on this pod maybe that do this, but very few people pay attention to the entire country. And so to make that statement where the best defense in whatever is uh, is usually weird. But everybody says their coach is the best coach. Oh, I got the best running back coach in the country. Well, He's your favorite, but how many other running backs coach have you, have you dealt with? You know, how that many, one always bugs me. How many running backs coaches can you name? Good point. Most people can probably name their own if they were a running back and played for a D3 team. That might be it. And no offense meant to uh, running backs coaches. It's enough for me to be able to uh, retain the names of 250 head coaches and you know as many offensive and defensive coordinators as I can think of. You know, Keith, we never did do that... Uh, that challenger game show we gotta have still have someone write up some questions now that is an off-season podcast don't you think i don't remember this what is what are we referring to i think at one point you had challenged me to a memory game or a game show of some sort where we were just going to name either as many schools as possible or someone names the coach someone names the school and then the other person has to name the head coach in a you know in like three seconds or something like that you know what i mean i am so yeah, I mean, that sounds like something I would say and suggest, and it's kind of seeped into the Friday podcast in the on the spot, although uh, we learned a valuable lesson a couple weeks ago and that we have to give Pat a, a, a tight framework or, uh, or the question answer period could get out of hand. You literally said I could pick as many games as I wanted. I did. I thought you'd take fewer than that, even with the freedom to take all you want. But hey, podcasts... Uh, are uh, endless in time 
And if people uh, really, for some reason, can't stand it, there's always that little 15 second forward button, right? Yeah, you would have had to nah. hit that 28 times to get through that segment, but yeah. Yeah, and not that I'd ever encourage anybody to fast forward this valuable uh, podcast. Not only that, please don't play it on super fast speed because it really annoys me. I really want people to listen to the entire cadence as it certainly comes out in the way I intended to. All right, last thought before we get out of here. Uh, Misericordia marching on. They finish at Albright. They finish at home against Lyco. Uh, I think that Misery is unlikely to get an at-large bid at 9-1 and one against a, uh, unless a bunch of one-loss teams lose because uh, uh, Misericordia also has a pretty low strength of schedule, and that number is likely to fall even further. Since the Cougars had been in the MAC basement forever, like literally forever, they're the entire length of the history of their program, they were excused from having to play the top two teams in the league when the league went to this unbalanced schedule. But that means that they have a lower strength of schedule because they have not played Stevenson, they've not played Delaware Valley, and they're not going to. Uh, with the loss to Merchant Marine, there's uh, the non-conference game, one of the non-conference games for Misericordia. That's a team that might well need a pool C bid as well. I don't see Ms. Recordia even getting to the board the way things look right now. But, you know, 9-1 and one and uh, a Max Centennial Bowl game would be a fantastic way for that, uh, for that program to celebrate a really awesome season, if nothing else. Yeah, and in all honesty, the, the big gift of making the playoffs, besides, you know, even more than bragging rights, is just getting one more game. To, to play with your teammates and to challenge yourself against the best teams in the country. So if you get to do that in a bowl, that's not so bad. Pat, let's try to stick to this for uh, for Friday pod. I uh, started doing a little bit of the research on this anyway, so it shouldn't be too difficult. But we should give the full rundown uh, of each conference, basically boiling it down to this conference is clinched, these two teams are still in the mix, and then we'll get to the fun stuff, the five-way, four-way, three-way ties and what the potential tiebreakers are. Right, unless we have a special Wednesday pod talking about the regional rankings. It's, uh, it's actually not a bad idea. And because um, I'd love to sit down and, and really put the 10, 12 uh, pool C teams, or at least the nine and ones uh, on the board. And then we can start just kind of whittling those away as those teams lose because there are teams uh, like uh illinois wesleyan and north central for example who uh come into this weekend's clash against each other each with a loss already one is going to take control of the, of the pool a race and the other one is not going to be a, a pool c candidate so you can't just open up the standings page and say hey whoever has one loss is, is a possible pool c whoever has no losses right now might be a pool c it's sometimes a little more complicated than that and this was D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast number 218, season 12, episode 19, released on October 29th, 2018. Thanks for listening and keep an eye on the rest of our coverage throughout the week. If you like this podcast, you know what I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask you to consider giving it a rating or giving us a review in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. I assume Spotify has reviews. I have no idea. Uh, anywhere you get your podcast. This will help other football fans find it. It will help our rankings. It'll make Keith and I feel happy about spending all of this time in our makeshift recording studios casting pods. Uh, you can also leave comments for us on the blog page or contact us in other ways I'll talk about in a second. But I have to mention that the executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music is by DJ Mentos, and you can find him at djmentos.com. And of course, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on d3football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football, and Keith is at D3Keith. 
We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post with a legitimate email address at d3boards.com. Also, you can follow d3football.com on Facebook. Thank you so much, everybody.